you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark. We're continuing our journey and our walk through this book. We're in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 19 this morning. As per the outline that's in your bulletin. We're going to see this morning kind of a contrast between popularity and purpose from this passage. It seems the two really don't mix with one another. Popularity usually distracts from purpose. People get off track all the time because they're popular, and then you don't want to do anything to upset your popularity. But purpose, true purpose, committed purpose, resists popularity's influence. And we're going to see that boldly projected here by what Jesus does in this situation. Faith in Christ will call us from popular to purpose if we have ears to hear his call. So the book of Mark, quick refresher, it's a testimony of John Mark, a cousin of Barnabas, who uh, also was a friend of Peter. So he's been connected and been around the disciples and Jesus probably during the ministry time frame. He went on a mission trip with Paul, kind of left in the middle, but eventually uh, Paul and him got back together on good terms. But Mark writes this gospel to convey the wonderful sovereignty of God and God's plan of redemption to a group of believers in Rome that after the fire in Rome, Nero was persecuting, blaming the fire on them. He wanted them to know that God still got this. God's still in control. And so right here, though, Mark has given us kind of a, a gives us a scope and popularity uh, of, the, of Jesus, kind of what he's going through as his ministry is probably getting close to its second year of, of activity. But he's also showing it in contrast to the foreordained purpose that Jesus came for. Let me read the passage, and y'all follow along on the screen or on your Bible as we look at this passage. So Jesus departed from his, with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon, he gave the name Peter. And to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Boergenes. Boergenes. Practiced that all week. That is sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew. Matthew and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus. Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the contrast that these two stories are going to show us this morning. 
And I thank you for your sovereign rule over our hearts, over the world, over the planet, over the universe, and how nothing happens without your hand being involved. Help us to trust that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Mark describes two scenes here, kind of seeming like they're kind of back to back, maybe not the same day, but in, in the same kind of time frame, few days. This is a scene of crowds. This is a scene of demons. This is a scene of disciples all surrounding Jesus. And Jesus anoints some of them with some genuine faith that we will see here. And authentic faith comes only from God. It comes from God as a gift. And Christ came to call those who the Father gave him, as he tells us in the book of John. So how does one come to faith in Christ? What, what are the sources of genuine faith? And that's what I think we're going to see here this morning. We see two sources of faith, and I want to put that kind of in quote, air quotes because we're going to talk about faith in good and bad ways. But there are two sources in this passage. One source is self-generated. The other source is divinely ordained. Which one will save? We'll see that here in just a second. First of all, many follow Christ from their presumptions. Many will follow Christ from what they presume about him. Verses 7 through 12. I want to read that again. So Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed him from Galilee. And a large crowd, a large crowd followed him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd would not crush him. Since he had healed them, since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Okay, so last week we talked about the, the previous verses. Verse 6 the Pharisees and the Herodians are getting together and conspiring against Jesus. So Jesus kind of departs from that area, wherever that was going on. We don't really know exactly the area. And he starts walking around the Sea of Galilee again, which is kind of the center point of his ministry, northern Palestine at the time. So he's walking around. He withdraws from their confrontation. And a crowd gathers. A crowd so large that it scares the Pharisees and the Herodians into taking action yet. Okay, it's like, wow, he's really popular. We don't want to do anything to upset the crowd so that they would be upset with us. So he, the crowd is huge, I, and no one knows the number, but it's large, okay? And these large crowds, they're coming from many places, and they're pressing upon Jesus to be healed. I mean, here's some, here's some of the places there. First of all, Galilee, the 20 by 30 mile region around the Sea of Galilee. Then he mentions Judea, which is kind of the area south and around Jerusalem. It's a, it's a region. Also, uh, the place Idumea. Idumea was a place that was conquered by the Edomites at some point during the intertestinal years, and then the Jews, the Maccabeans, eventually conquered it back. Beyond the Jordan, areas called Decapolis and Perea, and then Tyre and Sidon are two towns on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the area known as Phoenicia. Now, if you look in the back of your Bible at a map, you'll probably see all these places. So these are not strange places. They're usually used, they're tied to the reign of Herod Antipas, where what Rome had given him, part, at least part of them are. 
But the thing I want you to understand is they're mixed. They're Gentiles and Jews in these regions. So they're mixed. They're together. They were coming because of Jesus' reputation, not because he was the Messiah. That's why they gathered. They, as Paul, Mark writes, they heard about what Jesus was doing, not what Jesus was saying. And remember, we memorized Mark 1, 7, 15, I think it was. Jesus came saying, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. They weren't listening to that. They came because they heard what he was doing. See, Jesus is preaching to them that the kingdom of God is near. He's preaching that. But they didn't hear that. They didn't hear about repenting and believing. Now, the boat that he mentions here is a precaution, I think, more than anything else. He steps back into the water on the boat so he's away from the people so they can see and hear him. I don't think Jesus was afraid of being crushed by the crowd, but I think he was just giving him some space so his message would be heard and people weren't just always pulling at his clothes, trying to get healed. And so the, it's, it's not like Jesus is wanting to get away from the crowd. He wants to sit there or stand there in that boat and preach to them, and he does. So we never need to suggest that Jesus was afraid here. People were clamoring for him because they had heard that he could heal. They wanted to touch his cloak. By the way, Jesus' clothes had no power. Even when the woman that's suffering from it touches his cloak, it's not the coat that has power. It's not the fabric that has power. It's Jesus Christ that has power. So they were wanting to touch him, his clothes, to be healed. But there was forgiveness in his words. That was really what they needed. There was forgiveness in his words and healing in his hands, but they wanted personal help. They didn't want salvation. I hope you can see that in there. And then the, and then the demons recognize him. The unclean spirits or demons that were possessing people comes and they fall down. Well, they make the person fall down and the person cry out, you are the son of God. They recognize Jesus as the son of God and they surrender to him. They fall down, basically prostrate. They know he is God's son, but they don't know fully that he's actually God. They don't grasp that yet. Matter of fact, they're attempting to diminish Jesus's influence right there by using the term son of God, as if Jesus is just another human. They're trying to diminish that, which is another reason why Jesus shuts them up. I don't need your, I don't need your help telling people who I am. I'll take care of that. That's my message to preach, not yours. So he, he shuts them down. And they really haven't grasped that he's actually God in flesh. And their attempt to diminish his authority didn't work. He shut down their attempts to spurn the name. Now, I want you to see mercy right here. Because I talk a lot of times about the difference between mercy and grace. I think this is a great example of that. Mercy is not getting something you deserve. And that's what Jesus did. He healed them. He cast out demons. He took away the impact of sin on human flesh, on the body. Sin's impacts. He took that away. But he only took it away temporarily. Everybody he healed eventually died. Everybody he healed eventually will be judged by God Almighty. He didn't take away their death, their spiritual death, because they didn't ask for that. They didn't pursue that. He's showing them mercy. Okay, I'll heal your leprosy, your demon possession, 
your paralyzed body. I'll heal all that. Your shriveled hand. I'm healing that. I'm showing you mercy. Sin has polluted our world. That's why we have so many problems. That's why we have COVID. That's why we have cancer. Sin has destroyed the world. You can read about that in Romans 1. It, it's, a, it's a poor effect on our planet and on our people and on our bodies. And Jesus is showing them mercy by healing them. See, the, the crowds and, and the demons, they really didn't acknowledge him as a savior. Their faith was false. And there is such a thing as false faith. Their faith was false and self-serving. They only wanted stuff for themselves. Now, if you've been around Christianity long, you have met people who claim to be Christians, but only for their earthly benefit, only for this life. And when life gets hard and trusting Christ gets difficult, they usually leave because they just want mercy. They want easiness now. But we need to come to Jesus based on what the Bible says. And the Bible doesn't say he's here to give you an easy life. Abundant, yes, but that doesn't always equal easy. He's here to give you eternal life. And so our ideas of what Jesus is here, came here for, our ideas of what Jesus does for us, needs to be grounded in God's word, not in our own ideas, not in our own presumptions, which is what this crowd was doing. We must trust him, and we must follow that up with action. Luke writes, or Luke quotes Jesus in 646. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then in James 219, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, there's a false faith out there. The demons had it. They knew he was the son of God. They didn't trust him as the son of God. They didn't trust him for their salvation. So these crowds are gathering. These demons are being expelled. Popularity is soaring. I mean, Jesus has got this monstrous crowd following him around the Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's not that big. It's more like a lake, a big lake. It's smaller than any of our great lakes. It's not a sea, but we use that term a lot because it's the same word in Greek. But the point is, is that they were just following him around and everybody could see this. But we really here don't see any true faith. We don't see them trusting him and repenting and believing in him for their salvation. But scripture makes it clear that false faith in Christ will be a reality. And many will claim to be Christian. And I know you know people, maybe even your own family, who have walked away from the faith. And, and they may never have had genuine faith. Sometimes we think they've walked away from the faith, but I believe most of the time we need to remember what John wrote in 1 John. They went out from us because they were not of us. They may have looked like Christians. Judas looked like a disciple, and I'll get to that in a minute. But he wasn't. And they weren't believers in Christ. So for us this morning, I want this lesson to come out for us. We need to ask God to assure us that our faith is genuine. Our faith is in Jesus Christ alone, not in the idea of Christianity, not in the concept of what Jesus can do for us. And seek God for confirmation. When people come to me with a lack of assurance, you know, we're going to pray. Because <laughs> I'm not wanting to give you assurance because anything I can give you, someone can take away. Only God can give you that kind of assurance. And so you need to spend time talking to him. Ask him. Ask him for eternal life, not the easy life that this crowd seemed to be looking for. 
The question before us is, is, will you trust Jesus Christ for your soul's security, no matter what the threat? That's kind of a question that we have to face. Now, right now, as we speak, there are many Afghanistan Christians and pastors facing that very question. Am I going to trust Jesus through this? It's, it's terrible. There has already been beheadings and persecutions and deaths and imprisonments. It's horrible. And for us, we need to ask ourselves, what if our nation's government failed and went to the tyranny and anarchy that they're experiencing in Afghanistan? What would that do to your faith? Everybody over there believes we're a, a Christian nation. <laughs> and you and I living here know we're not a Christian nation. We may have been founded on Christ, some Christian principles, but we're not a Christian nation and by no means. But what if that government that we trusted, I mean, are we, I mean, it's challenging even now sometimes. It may be easy to play Christian in this world we live in, and a lot of people are doing it. But when you face death, real death, at the end, who are you trusting in? Because it comes for us. Will your heart be genuinely trusting in Jesus or just some idea you had of Jesus? So I ask this morning that you stop basing your faith and your salvation off your own ideas or perceptions because that's what this crowd was doing. They heard what Jesus was doing, not what Jesus was saying. We need to hear Jesus' plea for us to believe and trust him. Christ alone saves by faith alone in him. And these massive crowds and these demons, they never really discovered who Jesus was. Have you? You can. The Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It sounds simple, and it is, when God gives you that faith. But many of the people, they use Jesus for their own desires. And that's what we see in the first part of this. But then Jesus called some by grace to go up into the mountain with him and he would use them for his glory number two some follow christ because he chose them look at verses 13 through 19 jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted and they came to him he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons he appointed the 12 to Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and the, to his brother John he gave the name Boerginies, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So, Jesus has got this monstrous crowd following him, and then he decides... I'm going to go up into the mountain, which really was probably more like a hill around Galilee. I, I've been there, and it was like, there's no mountain there, not like the Rockies. There's nothing there that big. But for them, it was a mountain. For them, it was high up. He went up there, and as Luke tells us, he went up there to pray before he selected his disciples. But he went up to this mount, up these hills, and he called a bunch of people with him. Now, this is... And by the wording implies that there's a larger group he calls up to the hills with him, okay? It's not the whole crowd, obviously. I think in this group there were probably the Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, of Joseph, Jose, and a bunch of others. There's a whole bunch of Marys that follow Jesus around. Matthias, who took Judas's place in Acts chapter 1, 
Uh, I think Justice, who was the guy that was also being considered to take Judas's place, John Mark, the writer of this book, may have even been in this group that went up the hill with Jesus. So he calls a larger group there, and from them, he chooses 12. Now, we know he's already called Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. So we already have seen that in the book already. He's called five of the 12. But we see that he calls these 12 men for three purposes. First of all, mentoring. He wants them to be with him. Jesus wants them to follow him, listen to him, spend time with him. That's what he calls them for, mentoring. Second, preaching. He's, he's commissioning them to go out and preach, and we will see that later before we're done with this book, that he sends them out to preach. And then he also gives them the authority to exercise demons. Well, that would be handy, wouldn't it? I'm not saying everybody's got that authority, but these men were given that by Christ because Christ knew that there was a, 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 an oppression of demonic forces going on there in that first century Palestine. And right here, we see firsthand the sovereign rule and the sovereign hand of God. We see it firsthand. That he, he displayed these 12 guys Jesus chose. And we're going to explore them in a minute. Only God could choose them. Only God could give them the faith that they're going to need to be the apostles that they're called to be. See, God saw them in eternity past. God already saw them and had already chosen them before Adam and Eve were even created. That's the sovereign rule of God. Nothing has ever happened outside God's okay, his ordination. He has said this will happen, whatever is happening. So we don't need to fear and think that the world is just kind of running on its own. God's sovereign hand has been involved. And sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow when there's some tragedies that we just don't think are fair. But I'm telling you, it's, it's better to be there and trusting in God's sovereignty than to be out there trying to figure it out on your own. He saw these 12 men and he chose them for his glory. Now these men had no endearing traits, okay? Uh, we will see them flounder. We will see them fail. We will see them doubt. We will see them despair. We will see them run. We will see them hide. We will see them fear man before it's all over. Yet, Jesus chose them. In the first century AD, the normal practice was that the, the disciple went and found a person to mentor them. So it was like, you got to choose your mentor. And the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all them. So in, in the Jewish religion, you chose your mentor, but not Jesus. He turned that thing all, all the way upside down. He chose them. He chose those 12 men for himself. And they became apostles. Apostles is the Greek word, and this is transliterated from the Greek, just means messenger. But these uh, messengers were going to be a little more special. And we will see, you see that in Acts. You see that at the end. They're messengers with special authority from Jesus Christ. And eventually, by the Holy Spirit in Acts, we see them become heralds. They become mighty men for the gospel of Jesus Christ. All except the one. And we'll talk about him, unfortunately, a little bit more in a minute. But sovereign grace. And this is the contrast I see this morning in this passage. is Mercy versus grace. Sovereign grace reached out and chose these 12 guys. He chose these men for the plan that would change the world, and it did. 
Let's look at some of the history and traditions of these guys. I just thought it'd be interesting. First of all, all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a list of disciples, and not one of, two of them are the same. They have a little different name. Some of them have different names. Not different people, but different names for those same people. I'll try to explain that a little bit. I don't know which list or, or what, but let me talk about Simon Peter a second. Simon Peter. Simon was his real name. Jesus gave him the name Peter, which is from the word Petro or Petra, which is also meaning little rock, not big rock. He's not a boulder. He's just kind of a stone. But he was used to found the church. He was used at Pentecost to bring 3,000 into the Jerusalem church by God. He was the leader. He's at the top of all the lists. That's the one consistency you'll see in the list throughout the Gospels. He's always number one. Maybe because he had the biggest mouth, I don't know, and he kept sticking his foot in it, but that's something else to talk about on another day. He was crucified in Rome for his faith after he watched his wife be crucified for her faith. He was crucified upside down. He felt like that was the way to honor Christ because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified right side up. I mean, turn the cross upside down and imagine hanging on that. Difficult. So James, the brother to John, he died by Herod's sword, and he was the first apostle killed and martyred for his faith. In Acts 12, chapter, two, chapter 12, verse 2, you can see that. So James and John were brothers. They were fishermen by trade. John, his brother, very young, much younger, I think, Wrote the book of John. The gospel we have is John. He also wrote three letters. He wrote the book of Revelation. And he died around 98 A.D. Naturally. He's the only apostle that died of natural causes. An old age. He eventually at one point was the pastor at Ephesus of the church there. Jesus gave them the name Sons of Thunder. I don't think that was a compliment. I think he was describing their personalities. James and John are the ones who wanted to call fire down on the Samaritan city who didn't believe in Jesus. They're the ones that asked Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left hand when we get into the kingdom? They had a kind of a brute, bullish personality. And then there was Andrew, who was Peter's brother, who was always bringing people to Christ. He went north out of Palestine during the, the persecutions uh, after Stephen's after Stephen and, the, and I think after A.D. 70 when the temple was burned. He died on an X-shaped X cross because he led a Roman governor's wife to Christ. And he was crucified that way. And he hung there for days. He, his hands weren't pierced like Jesus's. He just was tied to it for days. And it says, the legend has it that he preached the whole time he was hanging there. Preached to everybody that walked by. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Believe in Jesus Christ. Philip. Philip went into Asia Minor, which is kind of like north and, and east, preaching. And he was stoned in a city called Heropolis, near Laodicea, and near some of the area where Paul had been. And uh, he had never been to actually Heropolis or Laodicea, but he was stoned for his faith. Bartholomew, who also has the name Nathaniel, so when you see the list, if you see Nathaniel, that's Bartholomew. And if you see Bartholomew, that's Nathaniel, the same person. They, he, went to, he went to Persia, which is kind of east. He also went to India, went up to Armenia. And he died either by drowning, by being put in a bag and thrown into a river, or by crucifixion. They don't really know. But he died for his faith. Matthew preached to Jews, mostly in Palestine and some abroad. And he died being burned at the stake. 
Thomas, doubting Thomas, he carried the gospel to India. He's, there's a grave actually near Chennai, India, that supposedly is his grave. But he died because someone running through with a spear. This is the same guy that put his hand into the spear wound in the side of Christ. Kind of interesting irony there. James the Less, there's several other names for him, but most of, most of them referring to James the Less. He's unknown in history, but he know, we know he was used by God. We don't have really anything tracking him. Then Thaddeus, who is also known as Judas, not Iscariot, <laughs> in one of the lists, he took the gospel to Edessa, which is actually in modern-day Turkey, and he healed the king of Edessa, King Agbar. There's, there was plenty of recordings of that healing. He was clubbed to death for his faith. And then Simon the Zealot, which we're not sure if he was part of the political party zealots resisting Rome at that time or not, but he was referred that way. He took the gospel all the way to the British Isles after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, but he died there preaching the gospel. See, these men gave their whole lives to Christ to serve the kingdom of God and to change the world. And only faith from God given to them could make them do that. I mean, we, we're going to watch them in Mark, the gospel of Mark, and it's like, these guys? But the truth is, God's faith changes people. Genuine faith granted by God the Father for their souls and Christ's mission called them from obscurity into eternity. All those who believe are called from obscurity into eternity. Let me talk a little bit about Judas Iscariot. He'll be in the picture a lot in, in later chapters. He participated in the preaching, the healing, the exercising that went on, in the miracles of Jesus. Judas was there for the whole shooting match. Jesus even washed his feet in the upper room, but he didn't believe. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he had regret. He didn't have repentance. Regret won't redeem your soul. Repentance, true repentance is. He refused the Christ. He refused repentance. He refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God, the Holy One, the Messiah. Even when he takes the silver back to the Pharisees, he says, this was a good man. He's more than a man, Judas. He could have been forgiven. I believe that. There's no sin outside the forgiveness of God if you ask, if you seek it. He could have been forgiven, but... He chose not to. But God chose these men, even Judas, for his glory in bringing salvation by Jesus to the world. I mean, when we think we deserve salvation, that's one of the things that I, I have to fight against. I think I deserve it, you know. We deserve, if we think we deserve salvation, we think we deserve forgiveness and God's grace, we need to remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul said that? Yes, he did. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus chose these 12 with the divine patience and the purpose of eternity, even Judas, and sometimes we ask, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why this? I didn't ask for this. 
We ask that. How come? But yet scripture gives us the answers, the sovereignty of God. He's using everything for his purpose. Our life's events, our life's history, they really lie peacefully under the sovereign hand of God. If we really trust God as a sovereign God, they just, they're there, and we know he's not ignoring it. He sees it. He knows it. So in Christ, choosing the 12, we see the doctrines of grace. This may be a new term to you, but it's just about how God saves by grace and grace alone. See, it starts with the fact that humans are so depraved we could never get ourselves right with God. We could never convince ourselves to admit we were wrong to God. We would never choose Christ if we were left to ourselves. Human depravity exists to that extent. In our own mind, we would never admit that, that we need a God or we need a Savior. And that depraved mindset requires God to literally intervene in our soul. It's not like we were all standing around waiting for God to come and save us. We're running headlong into what we want to do, which is eventually going to lead us to hell. And God intervenes. And he gives us faith that moves us to repentance. He chooses us one by one to believe. And if Christ is your Savior this morning, you are chosen by God for that faith. He made you aware of your sin. He made you aware that you had committed crimes against him, and then he gave you faith enough to repent, to trust him. See, grace is being given something you don't deserve. And that's where it shows up right here. These 12 guys did not deserve it. I mean, look at Matthew, for example. He was saved from tax collector hell. We talked about how bad those, those guys were. They were collecting taxes for the Roman government. He was saved from that. James and John, the sons of thunder, were saved from an arrogant lifestyle and an arrogant life. Simon the zealot, he was saved from a life of rebellion and insurrection because he, he wouldn't have chosen to follow Christ if God had not given him the faith to do that. Thomas was saved from a life of skeptical faithlessness. I won't believe until I can touch the side and see the wounds. I mean, we could go on. But I ask you this morning, what were you saved from? What would your life have been like if you had never come to Christ? If he had never given you faith, faith to repent? I know one thing you're saved from is hell. And that's the best thing to be saved from. Like Bob was sharing about his son, Ron. He's not there. He's in heaven. Praise Jesus. God gave you faith and you repented. And you need to praise the Lord for that. And God sent Jesus to die for those who he chose to save. Just like Jesus chose these 12 that God selected in eternity. We can only understand and accept this when we realize that all of creation falls under his sovereign rule. I've been saying it before. I will say it again. We can understand and accept these doctrines of grace only when we accept the fact and believe the fact that God's sovereign hand controls everything. Whether we like it or not, God is sovereignly in control of everything. Nothing is outside his purview. God's plan can't be stopped by humans or by global events. His plan will march on toward his good and glorious purpose. And that's where we rest. That's who we, what we trust in, that God's got this. 
And knowing all of this doesn't change what we're supposed to do. Our commission is still clear. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Our obedience to his great commission is also part of his sovereign plan. It's, it's really not how many become Christians. It's how many you tell about Christ that is important. You can't make people believe. Trust me, I've tried. You can't talk them into it. You can't argue them into it. You can't apologetically convince them. I tell people all the time, most intelligent scholars and, and scientists believe in an intelligent design of the universe. They, they believe that it can't exist without someone have been involved, but they will not trust God. They will not trust Christ. So you can't argue them in there. But that never lets us stop trying to make disciples by telling, talking, sharing the gospel. That's why obedience is better than sacrifice. Because like these 12, we only see in part right now. We only see what's right in front of us. We do not see eternity and how it all will work together for God's good. In eternity, we will see, <laughs> this is the great thing, in eternity, we will see the magnificent glory of God and his sovereign plan in full. And with the angels, we will rejoice and praise him. How great is our God. Amen? Faith has, has one wrong source in this story today ourself, but it has the perfect source in Jesus Christ. So the question I ask again is, is your faith superficial or supernatural? That's what God's calling us today to consider. So remember at the beginning that we talked about popularity versus purpose. Our faith in Jesus by his calling is for God's purpose. As Romans eight twenty eight says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And you are, as a believer in Christ, called to God's purpose for eternity. So believer, have you received faith from God to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? That's great. If that's where you are, now seek his purposes for your life. Tell someone about Jesus, that he forgives sins, that he gives abundant life, not easy life, but abundant life. And if you want to become a full partner in our fellowship, I'd love to talk to you about that as well. But if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, ask God to help you believe in Jesus. To get your heart right with him now by faith. Because faith in him alone is the only way to forgiveness. Faith believes with conviction, I trust you, Jesus. I trust your death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust that alone. You say it without reservation, you believe it without reservation, you hold to it without reservation, that Jesus Christ paid your death sentence on the cross. And you repent, you turn away, you get rid of all those other things that you've been hanging on to to make yourself right with God, to make your life what you want it to be, perfect or whatever. You get rid of those things. You put them behind you. Because it always must be about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for what we learned here from Mark and from your son's actions. We pray for your grace and mercy. We praise you for how it shows so distinctly right here. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for coming, living a sinless, perfect life and dying for us, paying that penalty. It's by your name we pray these things. Amen.
So Jesus came to wash our sins away with his blood. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing about how white our souls become because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing.